Turn to Colossians 1, and now we'll read the sermon text for this morning. I'll read it, and at the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you would respond, thanks be to God. We'll get into our sermon. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. You may have a seat. Join me in a word of prayer. One last time, our gracious God, we thank you for this wonderful text before us and how Christ is given to us in the gospel. We stand upon a text this morning that is of utmost importance in so many ways. Therefore, in so many ways, I and we feel at a loss to describe what is taking place here, what you have set forth in your word here in Colossians 1. So we need your help. We need our minds to be enlightened by the truth of Christ, and we need our hearts to be affected with his blood and death and resurrection on our behalf. And We need our wills to be changed. All of us, Lord, our our entire soul to be moved by this wonderful word of Colossians 1. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake and our good. Amen. Well, we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written to Christians who were perplexed about uh, true spiritual uh, fullness. What is uh, true spiritual realities or spirituality? Um, That was the question that was plaguing the Colossians. The church at Colossae wanted more. Sound familiar? They believed in Christ and they believed the gospel, yet they found themselves constantly looking for something uh, beyond something else to dazzle them, something else to pique their interest. Christ uh, and his work, in other words, uh, wasn't enough for the Colossians. 
Certainly there's something else out there that is um, that will bring us to true fullness as a Christian. And so they begin to dabble in Jewish and pagan practices. We're not quite sure what these all entailed. We'll get to these in due time in chapter 2. But they thought that Christ plus fill in the blank would give them a sense of spiritual fullness of living the real Christian life. And I think that's not too different from our day. Christians seem to be underwhelmed with Christ and His work today. That is, instead of the accent being on Christ and His perfect work for us, the accent today seems to be on what we need to do. Sometimes good things. A greater zeal. An all-out surrender. Like I said, fill in the blank for your life. And that, in some way, will, we think, will give us some sort of uh, true spiritual fullness. The Colossians in the Bible do not argue that way. Colossians' argument is this. When you place the accent on Christ, when your attention is on Him, do you then have a sense of what spiritual fullness is really all about? There's nothing beyond Christ, in other words. When God sent forth His Son, He not only gave His best, He gave His all. There's nothing beyond him that will bring you fullness of the Christian life. And so Paul attacks this deception. This, he confronts this deception in this letter. He pens this letter, Colossians, to them and to us, telling us to keep our eyes on the incomparable Lord Jesus Christ, which is our subject for today. I've outlined this text in four ways. You can do it more than that, I'm sure, but there are four components. We'll walk through these in succession. Christ is the image of God the Father. Christ is the image of God the Father. Secondly, Christ is the firstborn of creation. Third, Christ is the head of the church. And fourth, Christ is is the Savior for sinners. Again, we'll walk through these in succession, and I really hope just to dovetail on Ian's uh, wonderful lecture this morning on Sunday school. If you were reading Colossians 1, you were thinking, this sounds a lot like what I heard in Sunday school. You're tracking quite well. Uh, First, beloved, uh, Christ is the image 
of God, verse 15. He, that is Christ, picking up in verse uh, 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. So we have a dilemma in verse 15, and we have a resolution. The dilemma is that God is invisible. That attribute doesn't bode well for us who like to live by sight. That's a dilemma. We cannot see God with our eyes, 1 Timothy 6, 16. John tells us no one has ever seen God, John 1, 18. Paul speaks of God as the king of ages, immortal, invisible, 1 Timothy 1, 17. Job, as he's thinking about what just happened in his life, says this, Behold, he, God, passes by me, and I see him not. He moves, but I do not perceive him. John or Job 9, 11. The fact that God is invisible is a great dilemma to us. We want him to be tangible. That's what the Israelites wanted at the base of Mount Sinai. So they built the calf. Here's who brought us out of Egypt. It's a dilemma we have. And yes, although creation testifies and speaks of God's invisible attributes, right? His eternal power and divine nature, the, the, the world reveals those attributes of God, and yet what do we do with them? We exchange the creature for the creator. So this is a dilemma that God is invisible, and yet the beauty of this text and of the gospel is that the resolution to this dilemma is that Christ is the very image of the invisible God. And I understand this two ways. Not me only, but men and women before me. First, we should see this image as the essential image of God the Father. In His divine person, all right, as the divine Son, so considered absolutely, you might say, essentially, not in relation to creation, not in relation to us. Christ, the Son, is the essential image of God the Father in unity of the same divine essence. John Davenant, quote, it is not a shadowy image of the Father that he bears. So Christ is not just a, a similar image, a la Arius. Not a shadowy image, but he is the same essence and divine nature. So absolutely considered Christ, the divine Son, the second person of the Godhead, is the essential image of God the Father. What about in his incarnation? And the answer is yes, he is the representative image of God the Father. In his incarnation, Christ becomes the representative image of God to the church which is absolutely astounding. When the divine Son assumes to Himself flesh and bone, He remains the divine Son, but now takes on, you might say, or assumes the incarnate Son. Remember that um, conversation He had with Philip in the upper room? John 14. Um, 
Jesus is talking about going back to the Father. And He's going to build a place for His people. And Philip says, well, I want to go. Show us the Father. That sounds like a great idea. And Jesus responds to Philip, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. So not only in His divine Sonship, absolutely considered, but also as the incarnate Son in the face of Jesus Christ, absolutely staggering to think about, we see the glory of God. In other words, if He hadn't come, in the words of Acts 17, we'd still be groping around in darkness to know and to trust, and to love the triune God. And so John Owen says, this is the foundation of our religion, the rock on which the church is built, the ground of all our hopes of salvation, of life, of immortality. And this is why Paul says there's nothing beyond Christ. You want to have spiritual fullness You want to be mature as a Christian? The life of a Christian is not Christ plus my zeal. The life of a Christian is Christ alone. And coming to know Him in a deeper and deeper way. That is spiritual fullness. There's nothing beyond Him. And so John Owen says, you must see the Father as the Father of love. One of the implications of verse 15, as the Father sends the Son, is eyeing the Father as a Father of love. Is it not? I think we typically see God the Father as the angry one. He's the one hard to please. He's upset with my sin. And so because he's so upset, he sent his son to to somewhat twist his arm so that he could love me. But the gospel speaks of a different way. John 3.16 says, no. For God so what? Love the world. That he what? Gave his son. I, the Father, as a Father of love here. Jesus did not twist His arm to love you. He had His eye on you from eternity. The sending of the Son and His life and the cross and His resurrection is an expression of the love of God. Not the twisting of His arm to love you. And so the implication of verse 15, beloved, is to see God, the triune God, and more specifically, God the Father, as a Father of love. And so we come to the firstborn of all creation. We see here first that uh, Christ, in relation to God the Father, He is the image of God the Father. Secondly, Christ is the firstborn of all creation, verses 15 and 17. The firstborn of all creation Verse 16, for by him all things were created in 
heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Well, put it directly, Christ is not created priority, but eternal preeminence. That's what the term firstborn means. Christ cannot, or the firstborn cannot mean that Christ was the first created being, since verse 16, look at it, says that the entire creation came into existence by Christ. For by him all things were created. So Christ is not the firstborn in the sense of created priority. By him, as Ian told us earlier today, all things came into existence by Christ. And later on in the same verse, all things were created through him and for him. Creation has its existence for the glory of Christ. He is not the first created being. So what does firstborn mean then? Well, it's a theological term which means preeminence, authority, and supremacy. And I think the text that Paul has in mind here is Psalm 89. I just want to go back there with you just for a moment, if you would. Psalm 89, so that you can see this for yourself. So the next time you get a knock on your door by some well-dressed gentlemen, you can turn to them, Psalm 89, and talk to them about Christ as not the first created being. Psalm 89, starting in verse 20. And I just want to be here just briefly. Again, I want to establish that firstborn is not created a priority, but eternal preeminence. Psalm 89 is a psalm about David. The only problem is that by the time Psalm 89 is written, David is long gone. So what is Psalm 89 about then if David is dead? Who is this David that's going to come? And so you see there in verse 20, I have found David my servant. That should bring echoes of Isaiah, the servant songs of Christ. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Think of Christ as the incarnate Son being strengthened by the Spirit of God, the enemy shall not outwit him. That's true of Christ in his incarnate state. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike that down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. So here we have the exaltation of Christ, the Father, the Uh, and the Spirit being with the incarnate Son, the greater David, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the, what? Firstborn. And how does the next phrase interpret the word firstborn? The highest of the kings of the earth. 
Firstborn does not mean created priority, but rather, but rather eternal preeminence. Christ is the incomparable king of all things. Again, Paul is stressing to the Colossians, there's nothing beyond him. Nothing supersedes him. He is incomparable when it comes to his glory. And then he says in verse 17, Paul does, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So uh, Paul is saying here that Christ is independent and he is self-sufficient. He is before all things. He did not come into existence at the same time of creation, but rather, he is preeminent. Anselm puts it like this. He alone has of himself all that he is, while other things have nothing of themselves. And other things, having nothing of themselves, have their own reality from him. So Christ is not in need of creation or created things. He is before it and maintains it. He is ontologically independent from all things. He does not derive life from outside of himself. He is all life. John 5, 26, Psalm 36, 9. So everything derives life from him. Allah Sunday School. And I think an implication of this text of God's or Christ's independence being preeminent of creation is that one of our problems as Christians is forgetting God's independence. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ implores you to ask and to seek and to knock. Why? Because he has of himself, he is of himself, everything you need to reach spiritual fullness. And so as this ever-flowing, giving fountain, he pleads with you, come, ask, come and seek, come and knock at this wonderful Savior as the firstborn, the preeminent one, who is the only one who can give you what you need. If he is what he says he is, in other words, then it's not to the world you should go. It is to Christ that you should run to. So Christ is the firstborn of creation. And third, Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the head of the body, the the church. That, That refers to our mystical union between Christ and his people. Now, when I say mystical, I'm not saying, I'm not getting weird and being mysticism. Okay? Mystical implies it speaks of our, our true union with Christ, though we cannot see it, though it's more real than your physical body. Does that make sense? 
our mystical union with Christ by faith is a real reality, though you may not and you do not see it. That's what this expression is getting at, that he is the head of the body like the, like the head of our members of our body. It means that the church has no life apart from Christ and receives from Christ whatever life it has. For Christ to be the head means that church, that the church and all her members lives and operates only through Christ. For Christ to be the head of the church is the reason why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because Christ is her head. There's many ways to describe Christ as our head. Let me just give you two. Dear congregation, Christ is our safe head. Christ is far above all powers and principalities in this age and the next. Ephesians 1.21 Whatever befalls us, whatever befalls the body, Christ stands enthroned as our safe head. And if all is well with Christ, all is well and safe with us. Whatever may come, Christ is our safe head, our tower of refuge to run to. So whatever befalls us, there our head is standing enthroned above all things, all rulers, all powers, all principalities, and if all is well with him, so it is with us. Do you see why Paul is saying, you know Colossians and you know Calvary redeeming grace, there's really no spiritual fullness beyond Christ. Spiritual fullness is knowing him. He's our supplying head. I love this. He supplies the body, you and me, the members, with gifts to keep the body healthy. And I'm just going to embarrass him. Isn't it amazing when you see Ian's gifts on display in Sunday school? I told you. Isn't it, though? And we can go around the room. But just as one illustration, that gifting makes us and keeps us and sustains us healthy. And so Christ, as our head, as our supplying head, gives gifts to us to maintain our health. If you are here today and you think, man, I'm just a nobody, and no one cares about me, and I'm just lost in here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, God arranges the members of the body, each one of them. Don't you love that phrase? Each one of them. No one left out, in other words. God arranges the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose, 1 Corinthians 12, 18. So there are no nobodies. No one is left out. Why? 
Because God has arranged you to be in this body to keep us healthy. He says something else here too. He calls Christ the firstborn, verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The idea behind firstborn from the dead is the idea of first fruits. You remember this in 1 Corinthians 15? First fruits were offered as a part of representing the whole harvest. So first fruits were also the best piece of the offering, but also it was a representation of the whole harvest. In other words, for Christ to then be called the firstborn or the firstfruits from the dead is for his resurrection to be our resurrection. There you go again, that mystical union with Christ. And so when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon and he said, this is one small step, or let me just read it. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Christ, as our head and our firstborn from the dead, that first resurrection morning, as he wraps up the grave cloths and sets them aside, Christ steps out of the tomb. And he says, that's one small step for me. But that's one giant leap for my people. He's the firstborn from the dead. You are so united with Christ, beloved, that what he won, you win. When your sin was exchanged for his righteousness, On that day, it was truly nailed. And his rising from the grave is actually, in a mystical way, though real in every sense of the term, is actually your resurrection from the grave. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? He says. Paul hasn't even risen from the grave yet. And he says that, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it's already won for Paul. And it's won for you. So, we see Christ as the head of the church, the firstborn of creation and the image of God. Uh, Lastly, Christ is the Savior of sinners. Uh, Verse 19 to 23. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here we see, beloved, that Christ is the Savior for sinners. In fact, don't you, don't you recognize the flow of the text? He's taken you from uh, uh, the Divine Son, the second person of the Trinity in, in verse 15, and now we come all together to the Incarnate Son and in being nailed to the tree and reconciling you to Himself. He says, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I read that and I think, you know what? Christ is furnished with everything necessary to save you. He is not lacking in anything. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. As the incarnate Son, He is full of perfection full of eternity, full of infinity. His infinity is good. His love is immutable. And therefore, He is able to present Himself as the final and spotless sacrifice in your place, precisely because all the fullness of God dwelt in Him. He is not lacking in anything to be a Savior for sinners. He is furnished with everything to save you. And then he says, Paul does, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Well, not only is Jesus furnished with everything necessary to save you, Jesus will be, he will be, the great cosmic reconciler. This does not mean universal salvation, though some have taken it that way. Not universal salvation, but universal submission. Forced or faithful. At the consummation of all things, Christ will bring a harmony to this world, to all things. He will bolt out of heaven, Revelation 19, on a steed, he says, on power. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be with him a sword, a sword of the Spirit. And he will come to vindicate his justice and to display his love for his people and he will bring about a harmony for all things. And so Paul tells the Colossians, and he tells us, you know, there's nothing really beyond Christ for fullness. Jesus alone will be the great cosmic reconciler. As that hymn says, we long for that day when Jesus comes again, when sorrow and pain will all come to an end. When justice is done and evil cast away, oh, may we all be found in Christ that day. There will be universal submission, forced or faithful. And lastly, Paul says, uh, you were once alienated 
and hostile in mind. Don't you see how personal Paul is getting now? You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled to himself in his body of flesh by his death. Notice in verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell with him. He's true God of true God. But now in verse 22, he talks about his body of flesh. So he's true man of true man. It's that that catechism question and answer we read earlier. Who is that one great meteor that we need? Oh, the God-man. Very God of very God and very man of very man. There it is right there, verse 22 and verse 19. That's Jesus Christ. That's who we need. Paul says, don't you know that you were once alienated, past tense. He's writing to Christians here and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Think back on your life, beloved. Think back on what you were. Think back on what you did before Christ came and saved you by his grace. Paul says you were alienated. You were far off. You were estranged. You were not near the grace of the gospel and his cross. No, you were long gone. And he says you were hostile in mind. That faculty of the soul was in hostility, enmity with God, enmity with Christ. And you were doing evil deeds. And some of you think back to your life and you're like, oh, yes, that's me. Oh, yes, that's me. I was hostile. I was alienated. And I did evil deeds. And this good news of verse 22 breaks in. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Without your help and without you being lovely and without you being lovable, this is what Christ has done. He's reconciled you in his body of flesh in his death as he was dying and bleeding. Paul wants... To you to see it, don't you see it? Look at the cross here by his death. He's such a wonderful Savior for sinners who were long gone. Why does he do it? He says, in order to present you. Do you ever get tired of Hearing the good news? I don't, thank you. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I'm trying to find the words here in this text that that tells me what about me deserves this. And I can't find it. So Christ takes alienated sinners reconciles to himself why to present you justified and blameless and holy and spotless before the triune God here Christ says 
look at this. Look at this marvelous saint. Oh, perfectly justified. Never to be unjustified again. And he has been now reconciled, or she has been now reconciled to us because of my cross. And so Paul tells us again for the fourth time, you know, there's nothing really beyond Christ. He is the absolute preeminent image of God. He is the firstborn, the preeminent one, the king of kings of creation. And he is the head of the church. So that what happens to him happens to you. And he is the savior for sinners. Implication, verse 23. Why would you ever shift from the hope of the gospel? Why would you ever shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard? Where are you going to go to find such majesty? Where are you going to go to find such power? Where are you going to go to find such grace? Nowhere. Spiritual fullness, beloved, is not tacking on some self-engineered obedience to Christ. Spiritual Fullness is putting the accent on Christ and never shifting from Him. Let's pray. So, great God, we ask that you would keep Christ at the forefront of this church. He is all these things for us, and we had just scratched the surface. May Christ be our all.